0: I've just, uh, this is my second stop in Europe. Uh, Previously, I was in Macedonia. Although, as a professor, I love to see students who want to learn, that is not the purpose for my coming to the Czech Republic. Uh, My purpose for coming to the Czech Republic, as Milan mentioned, is to set up a Center for the Study of Political Islam, international, based here in Czech Republic. It started out just in uh, America but there is much to be done other than writing books and giving lectures. There's practical, political work that needs to be done, and that's what we need to do with CSBI. What we want to do here is to establish several things. Uh, We want it to be educational. We're looking for people who want to learn and then lecture. We're also looking for researchers. One of the things that's interesting, which I will be displaying to you here at first, which is a history lesson, is that the true history of Islam is not known. I came from Macedonia, as I said, and the governments there are doing what they call synchronizing the histories. And what is happening is Turkey is putting a lot of money into the Balkans, and they no longer want to insult the Turk by speaking of the Ottoman Empire and what it did to the Balkans. This is just a simple example. There's much history that needs to be known. And then there's the matter of the fact that we have a translator here because uh, we all don't speak the same language. So to write a book, we need to be able to have that book accessible in many different languages. So we need translators. And if you can do any kind of translation from English, because that's the only thing I speak and write in, then you can help us by doing that. We need people who can speak well (laughs) and... That has happened to me while I'm speaking on stage. <laughs> so, we need all kinds of people. For instance, we need people who know finances. Unfortunately, to do anything in politics, you need money. That means it needs to be accounted, kept up with. We need fundraisers. Basically, this is a political th- thing we're trying to start. Uh, we Researchers, we also need, for instance, to establish a library. And by a library, what I mean is There are many things known about Islam, but there are also some books which are not that good. So we want, and there are some very excellent old books. So we would like to establish a research section which can not only study history, but basically at least put together a library so that you can learn the truth about Islam. Now then, I'm a scientist and I love rational or critical thought. And so when 9-11 happened, and 9-11, September 11, 2001, is the breakpoint in America's acceptance of Islam. That's a stopwatch, so I know when to quit. Have we not all been listening to a speaker and they're like, hello, will he stop? So, <laughs> so anyway, I realized that in America, no one knew a Sikh from a Hindu, from a Buddhist, from a Muslim. Now, I started my study of Islam when I was 30 years old, which was 43 years ago. So, I've learned a bit about it, and I've been rather fascinated about it because I'm also fascinated by the fact that I believe that religious doctrine is an overwhelmingly important component of history, which today wants to be sort of submerged or brushed aside. But I think that we will see here that doctrine will drive history. I'm also going to be talking about, you're going to see some parts of Europe involved here, Because one of the things I want to explain is, how and why did the Dark Ages occur? It never made sense to me, the story that I read from classical history, which was that the German tribes invaded Rome, and the Roman Empire was corrupt, it collapsed, and then all of a sudden the Europeans didn't know how to read and write, didn't know how to do anything. And it didn't make sense to me, the effect, which was the Dark Ages, did not seem to be... They were so big, how could it be caused by such a small item as German tribes invading the Roman Empire? We have our first slide, which is, I'm not used to working with a cord on a microphone. (laughs) We have our first slide, which is, how did this come about? Exactly. The green is Islam. How did this happen? Most people have no idea. So we want to examine that, and on our next slide, we see that before this is about the map of the Byzantine Empire, about the time that Muhammad's descendants, the Muslims, were going to burst out of uh, Arabia and invade the classical world. So this was what the impi- the classical empire, when the fall of Rome happened, is being reestablished. This is the Byzantine Empire. And on our next slide, we see what happened in 25 years after Islam invaded the classical world. How did they spread so far, so fast? North Africa, we also have the Middle East. How did this happen? A good explanation is generally not given. It collapsed so fast. And on our next slide, we see here what I call the first stage of classical annihilation. The Byzantine Empire shrinking, we're, uh, Islam is pressed into uh, what's called Persia, then, in those days. And there's almost none, none of the classical left in North Africa. On our next slide, this is basically 100 years. This is a massive expansion. How did this happen? So fast. This is like a collapse. Why did this happen? On our next slide, we... Uh, You're going to witness something here in the sense of this is going to be a data-driven talk. This is going to be about facts. This is going to be about objective thought. That is, anybody else can do the same work that I've done. This is important. One of the things I want to do at CSPI is to teach people how not to use opinions, but to use facts. We want to use our intellect. We don't want to use emotions. There was a big book published, and when I say a big book, it was an 1,100 page history book called The Rise of the European Economy, AD 300 to AD 900. Now that sounds like a very boring book, but it was fascinating. It was the first history book I ever read which does not have a story. All right, There's, and even said so in the book. This is a narrative without a story. What had happened is, is that there had been a lot of research about the archaeological remains under the Mediterranean Sea. Now it turns out one can learn a great deal about looking for shipwrecks beneath the ocean. Let me give you an example. The Mediterranean, particularly in the classical world, was very dangerous to sail on. So therefore, there was always a certain percentage of sailing ships which sank. So if in a certain time period you find a lot of ships, that tells us there was a great deal of trade. If there's a period in which you don't find ships, that means that there was not a lot of business going on. So we can learn a lot from what is left, the remnants of history. Now there was another kind of archaeology that's been done, and it was an archaeology about data. Old classical documents had been translated and then put into a massive database. And this was one of the most fascinating things because in the back of this book, in the appendix, were all these battles fought between Islam and the classical civilization. Now most people, even if they know a bit about history, they may know about La Ponte, they may know about the fall of Constantinople, they may know about the invasion in Spain in 711. And that begins to be about all that most people I know who would consider themselves pretty good historians know about. Well, there was just battle after battle after battle. I was fascinated because I thought this was the insight that I'd been looking for to try to explain the Dark Ages and the rise of Islam. Well, once I took all the battles in the appendix out of this book, I then began to use the internet to do research And I put together a database of 548 battles that Islam fought against the classical civilization. 548. Well, now what was I going to do? Because who wants to... If I sat here and started reading to you a list of 548 battles, you would head for the door. But we needed a way to display this. So I developed something which I called a dynamic battle map because what i want us to see is not what one battle did but the sweep of history so this is a strategic overview this is what i'm this is one frame from what a dynamic battle map is i took the period that i had information which was from ad 632 to 1922 and divided it up into 20 year periods so every time the map changes it's another 20 years And we see here that what we have in these white dots is the present-day call number two. So what we want to do is, these are the new and current battles, and then they are going to change to red, which means they're now in history. So we're going to build up with every 20 years an overlay of all these 548 battles. So now then, if we could play the first movie. Bang! The first 20 years. Look how fast this is happening. Battle after battle. And notice something. Islam is projecting power across the oceans or the Mediterranean. Most people when they think of Islam think of Arabia, they think of deserts, and they think of camels. But this is the projection of naval power. Look how quickly North Africa fell. The invasion of Spain is there. And battle after battle, every 20 years. Now one of the things that's happening with these invasions of the islands and invasions of the coastlines is there's going to be one million Europeans captured and taken into slavery. Think about that. This is not a history that most people like to think about or even know. You will notice that it is relentless. It is ceaseless. It goes on and on and on. Why is this? Because all of this was an imitation of Muhammad, the supreme warrior. He averaged an event of a battle every six weeks for the last nine years of his life. It was He was relentless and the jihad was relentless. Now what's going to happen is there's going to be the green is going to disappear in uh, Spain, and look what's happened now. We've yes, we're past the fall of Constantinople, and now then the Balkans are being hammered, and as you probably well know, they're going to get up to the gates of Vienna. This is the maximum expansion. And by the way, there are many battles going on in Africa. There are battles going on in Pakistan, Persia. I, cla- I focus the ones just on the classical civilization of Europe. There have been criticized by Hindus and Zoroastrians and Buddhists that I have not included their battles. And what I tell them is if you'll put together the database, I'll put it on my map. But I became exhausted by the work. Okay. Next slide. This is what I call the destruction of classical civilization. Next slide. Now, what I've given you here is an exercise in quantity. This is the number of battles. But what I want to do now is, there's a history of suffering that's going on here. So I then took and put together, these are sort of news of the day for century after century because we not only want to understand how many battles there were, but what was the quality of this work. And so here we have the uh, 7th century. The jazima tribe was... Uh, Muhammad sent Khalid, the sword of Allah, to the jazima tribe to offer to them an invitation to come to Islam. They said, no, we don't want to do that. So he destroyed them down to the last man, woman, and child. Then we have an event in the Battle of Olasis in Iraq where after the battle was over, Khalid, the sword of Allah, brought forth the chieftain who survived the battle and brought forth his wife. He then cut off the chieftain's head, soaked the blood, and then took the wife and raped her on top of the blood of her husband. It turns out that we will study a little bit about the doctrine of jihad, and it includes the doctrine of uh, the rape. Here we also have that the Jerusalem fell and Christians and Jews were made demis, These are sort of half-citizen, not half-citizen, semi-slaves. In the next century, notice something here. I start here by saying that this is the first century of the Golden Age. Surely all of you have heard of the Golden Age of Baghdad. So this, the next few centuries, I'm going to show you what was happening, not only in quantity, but the quality of what the expansion of the Golden Age was. So, Islam moves to the east, there's attacks on the, in Hindustan, 26,000 Hindus die in one battle. Then in Armenia, the bishops and nobles invited the Muslims to have a debate. After the debate was over, the Muslims pushed everyone into the church and burned down on top of them. In Ephesus, 7,000 Greeks are enslaved. Next slide. There was an order for the, from the caliph, the ruler of Islam, to destroy all new churches. At Amorium, there was massive enslavement of Greeks and the Egyptian Christians revolted over the Gesia, the Copts. These are the Coptic Christians who are suffering today. So this is the beginning of their suffering. The jizya was the tax on the Demi. Next slide. We're still in the Golden Age, the 10th century. In Thessalonica, 22,000 Greeks are enslaved. In Seville, Spain, the Christians are massacred. And then 30,000 churches were destroyed by the order of the caliph in, in Egypt and Syria. Our next slide. 6,000 Jews of Morocco. By the way, we're still in the Golden Age. This is all Golden Age material. 6,000 Jews of Morocco are killed. Hundreds in Cordoba are killed. 4,000 Jews in Granada are killed. And now we have the invasion of Georgia and Armenia. And in Hindustan, in one battle, 15,000 were killed and 500,000 were enslaved. Next slide. In Yemen, the persecution of the Jews goes on. They're given the order convert or die. The Christians of Granada are deported to Morocco. And in India, many cities are destroyed under the order convert or die. 20,000 Hindu slaves were taken in one town. And in our next slide, 50,000 Hindu slaves are freed by conversion. Islam has a doctrine of slavery. And they view it as beneficial to, uh, to Allah, because one, about the only way that a slave can get his freedom is to convert to Islam. So therefore, this is this mass conversion of Hindus. And a 20-year campaign tre- created 400,000 new Muslims out of Hindus. The Buddhist monks are uh, butchered, nuns are raped. And then an intellectual tragedy happened, if this isn't tragic enough, in which the library at Nalanda. At that time the largest library in the world. It was a Buddhist library and it took days to burn. In Damascus and Safid there's mass murder of Christians. The Jews of Marrakesh are massacred. In Tabriz, there's forced conversion of Jews. And in our next slide, we're still in the Golden Age by the way. This is golden. In our next slide, we're still in the Golden Age in Cairo, there's more riots by the Coptic Christians, and churches are burned. force conversion of Jews and Tabriz, and Tamerlane kills as many Hindus as 90,000 in a day. In India, 30,000 are massacred in cold blood, and then Taliq, one of the invaders, a Muslim, took 180,000 slaves. In the 15th century, we're finally over the golden age, but see if you can tell any difference from what's happening. Tamerlane in India devastates 700 villages. And this is one of the great tragedies. Arab Christianity is being destroyed. The Nestorians and Jacobite Christians were annihilated. Most people don't know this, but Persia was half Christian. The Silk Route was half Christian. The Nestorian church had missionaries in the court of China. Nobody knows this history. This is invisible. It's been suppressed. After 700 years of attacks, Islam finally destroyed and captured Constantinople. A relentless thing. One of the things that you come to appreciate when you study Islam is that it is infinitely patient. It doesn't matter if it happens this generation. There's another generation to come. For 700 years, they tried to take down Constantinople, and then they did. 16th century, the son of Camerlane, destroys temples and there's forced conversions. The generals after that battle built two towers of heads. They were so tall that a man on horseback couldn't see over them. The same thing happened in Spain. Towers of skulls were built so tall that a man could not see over them on horseback. Noble women, and this is the Hindu noble women commit mass suicide to avoid sexual slavery and rape. The technical term for this is, whoops, on my slide, I'm recovering from an error. Ah. There is a custom which evolved in which after the battle, if the Hindus lost, the, particularly the elite, women, the, the elite leaders' wives would commit mass suicide by throwing themselves into fire. The practice of sati. Have any of you heard of the concept or the name the Hindu Kush? in Afghanistan. Hindu Kush means death place of the Hindus. So you can look on Google today and you can see the Hindu Kush. 17th century, more Jews are forced to convert in Yemen and Persia. There's forced conversion of Greek Christians. The Zoroastrian persecution is increased. One of the religions which is going to be annihilated is Zoroastrianism, which was in Persia. In India 600,000 Hindus are murdered. In the 18th century, on the next slide, the Zoroastrian persecution becomes intense, the Jews of Jeddah, Arabia are expelled, the Jews of Morocco are massacred, and the Hindu persecution continues. And on our next slide, in the 19th century, more forced conversions, more massacres, and now then is the beginning of a tragedy which goes into modern times. 250,000 Armenian Christians are slaughtered in Turkey. Now then, the Zoroastrian religion is now completely annihilated. Then in the 20th century, one million Armenians die. You were alive, some of you, when this happened. Now then, I want to say a bit about the classical civilization. It was a Mediterranean civilization because the Mediterranean gave easy and safe transport and here we see some figures. And this came from this book, uh, The Rise of the Economic, Rise of European Economy, AD 300. It took 10 days to sail from Carthage, North Africa, to Italy, but if you took a land trip, it took 140 days. So the Mediterranean, if you will, was the equivalent of a jetliner. It compressed time. It was very fast to move across the Mediterranean. And it was cheap, because it was shipping a ton of grain from Egypt to Rome cost the same amount as shipping it for 75 miles by ox cart. So it's fast, it's cheap. So these ships were like the jumbo jets of their age. Now this is something interesting. Today we consider Egypt, for instance, part of Africa. We consider the North African coast, Morocco and such, as being part of Africa. But in those days it was not thought like that. Because you you could go from Egypt to Rome very quickly by boat. But in the, say, Nigeria, modern Nigeria, it would take perhaps a year. So as a result, all business occurs in the Mediterranean with other Mediterranean countries. Does this make sense? It was so easy to move around that the rest of what we call Africa was like too distant to bother with. Now this is going to end, but one of the great benefits of the Roman Empire and the Byzantine Empire was that there was no crime, there was very limited piracy. Your only danger was the weather. Imagine if the trucks on the road here that we passed coming by, if all of a sudden it was not safe. What would start happening to the trade? Alright? This is, this is going to have major economic effects. And here's how important it was. In the harbor of Constantinople, there could be as many as 500 ships. Do you see the importance of the Mediterranean? Because this is getting ready to change. On our next slide, before Rome, before Islam, Rome communicated with France by ship. After Islam, they sent the message over the Alps. Why? It was too dangerous. They needed the message to get there. A plague, this is very interesting, and once again this was in this, his, uh, this history book. A plague that started in Iraq, One of the things of the classical period was there were outbreaks of bubonic plague, which was caused by rats, fleas on rats, which came into the harbor. Well now then, if there's not much trade with the Christians, therefore the disease cannot spread as fast. So therefore, before Islam, it only took classically about four months for it to spread around the edge of the Mediterranean. But after Islam, it took four years. Again, this is a measure of how impacted The trade, the naval trade was, one of the historians of Islam bragged that Christians could not float a plank on the inland sea. Now let me ask you, we're in Bruno now. What if no trucks could come into this town, or one came in every four months? What would happen to the economy? It would collapse we're beginning now to create a new understanding of the Dark Age. On our next slide, what happened was is that Europe became impoverished economically, and this is important, isolated culturally. All right. By the way, for some of you, if you want the copy of these slides, get a business card from me after this talk and I will send you the whole slideshow. We're gaining yet more insight into the Dark age, so-called Dark Ages. This was an economic jihad. We need to understand this. Islam preyed on Christian ships, and all the European and Byzantine items. uh, Civilization became isolated and quite poor. What is the effect? We've all heard of the European Dark Ages, right? There was not one. There was three different Dark Ages all occurring at the same time. We have a common effect. I posit a common cause. There was one in Europe, Byzantine Empire in North Africa. Now the one in North Africa was very, uh, was very interesting. Again, from this book on archaeology of history, there is a layer of silt in the Mediterranean at the North African coastline. It's, a, it's land that was eroded, How did this erosion occur so fast? Well, this is very interesting. And why are these buildings in North Africa still standing? Because what happened to the classical buildings in, say, Rome? They were used as supplies. The buildings, temples, and other things were taken down, all right, and used as though it were a quarry. The collapse of the North African Christian civilization happened so fast that there was not anyone left to harvest the stone. There is something called a neutron bomb. It does very little destruction of, p- of buildings, but kills everything that's living. This happens so fast that there was no one left to take these buildings down. Now then, in our next slide... Oh, I want to say one more thing here. Um, now let's move along. So what did the Europeans do? Well, they did what they could with what they had. The economy became primitive. Capturing, uh, trapping animals and selling furs. Then there was selling of lumber. And they had skill with weapons, uh, ironwork, and so they made swords. And then this is the most tragic and shameful part. The Europeans sold their own into slavery in the Muslim world. And I think that this is one of the reasons that people don't want to know this history. Who's proud of the fact that your ancestors sold each other in order to get by? Now the establishment says that the loss of civilization had nothing to do with Islam, that Islam was a force in good because the knowledge was preserved in the Golden Age. I have reached a different conclusion which is heretical. On our next slide, I say that the data says that the Greeks and Roman civilization was annihilated by jihad and replaced by an Islamic civilization. Christianity was forever changed. Arab Christianity was basically destroyed. So what we had from Christianity in the classical sense was a bloody stump of the original Christianity. And our next slide. Now then, in America, I don't know here, but if you mention anything about Islamic Jihad, as I've done here, they say, Oh, but what about the Crusades? The Crusades were the worst thing that ever happened. It was shameful what the Christians in Europe did. They made some mistakes. But let me tell you something. You've already seen that, Egypt, that churches were being burned and destroyed. There was constant brutality against the Christians. Christians were fleeing. And the Byzantine Emperor pled for help to the Pope. Now this was bitter in his mouth to do this because one of the tragedies of Christianity was when faced with Islam, it divided amongst itself and fought with others. That is, this, the jihad was so intense that they would deal, the arguments they had amongst themselves limited them because they would not unite for a common enemy. On our next slide, though, we see what the Pope saw. This was Europe at the time of 1100 A.D. So this was the world he saw. Battle after battle had taken place. Christianity in North Africa was gone. Christianity in Spain was under constant attack. So the persecution of the Christians was not an abstract thing to the Pope. And so the Crusades started. Now, in our next thing, what I want to do here, remember I showed you a dynamic battle map, and I have another battle map which shows the Christian offensive war battles in the same time frame and in the same way. All right, so now we need to play our Crusades movie. Okay, so here's the crusade battles on the same time everything is 20-year period. And that's it. On our next slide I ask this question. Were these morally equivalent as we say in America? Oh, they were the same. Because. The Crusades were defensive. What do you mean they were defensive? They went into the Muslim world to kill. Well, how did the Muslims get there? Uh, they invaded. (laughs) So, it ended 800 years ago. The jihad lasted 1400 years. It is active today. These, in my opinion, are not morally equivalent. So we can't say, well, we just won't study the jihad because the Christians were just as bad, the crusades were just as bad, so there's moral equivalency. I don't know if this language is heard here in Europe, but it's heard in America. In our next slide, I want to deal with the Golden Ages because the Golden Ages are portrayed in America I stood in a university professor of history's office in Princeton University and he told me that the high point of all civilization in the world occurred in Baghdad during the Golden Age. The more I learned about this I thought, you know, I don't think that's true. So what I want to do now, we want to play a little movie. There were two Golden Age, one in Andalus, Spain, and so what I want to do is do the dynamic battle map of simply in Spain in our next movie. Now, this is the same data, but this is simply what happened in Spain for 700 years. Now, remember, some of these battle towers of heads are being built. One of the caliphs who ruled in Spain made it a habit of going out for jihad in the spring and jihad in the fall. Slaves are being taken. The first order for slaves came from the caliph in Baghdad and he requested, he sort of issued a purchase order and said, I want 3,000 blonde virgins. And so they were gathered and shipped off to Baghdad. I leave it to your imagination. By the way, the Christians and Jews were not free. They were demis, semi-slaves themselves. This is one reason they wanted to fight. Who wants to be a half a slave? Now let me say something. There were some people in the golden age in Andalus who did well. I do not know the particular history here, but I would be willing to bet under the Nazi invasion that they found local people who were willing to work with them and do business with them. Is this true? It is ever thus. You can always find somebody in a conquered people who are willing to work for you. Why? Well, they want to get along and they don't see it as a betrayal. Okay, in our next slide. I ask this question. Oh, this is what had to... uh, Hold on here. Okay, there was no Islamic golden age in Spain. Golden not in the sense I would talk about it. Because as I said, the demis, Christians and Jews were demis. There was slavery, constant war, the elites had it good. And I ask this question, why are we told this story that it was so good? I think it's because we don't want to examine how bad it was. In our next slide, I want to talk about the Baghdad Golden Age. And so we are going to play a little movie now and we're going to see what happens during the Golden Age of Baghdad. The battles start. Now one of the things that's happening in Baghdad we were told as an intellectual history that this was a wonderful golden age of thought, that the Muslims were fabulous mathematicians, and there were some areas in which they excelled. Geography and astronomy was one. But as a scientist, what I noticed was this. Although there was some science in the early days in the Baghdad golden age, it reached a philosophic conclusion, which was this. There are, is no such thing as a law of nature. There is no such thing as cause and effect. Because, you see, a law of nature and cause and effect would limit Allah. And Allah has no limits. So therefore, there is no cause and effect. There are no natural laws. Do you know what that does to science? It ceases to exist. Because science, and I'm a scientist, you know this yourself, they're all laws of nature. If I drop this, it's going to fall. And there's cause and effect. That is the basis of science. But I ask you this question. When we look at those who've won Nobel Prizes, very few of them come from the Muslim world, and those that do, they were in a Kafir. Kafir is an unbeliever. Kafir is a, uh, you would call it infidel, perhaps, is the word you've been given. But the Nobel Prizes come in Kafir nations with Kafir partners. All right, in our next slide, let's examine once again Christians and Jews were dimmies. Christian women were used as sex slave where they deny cause and effect. Now then, they say that Baghdad preserved the classical civilization, the books, the literature. They destroyed 90% of them. I ask you a question. If 10% made it golden, what do we talk about when we say the original 100%? What do we call that? Why wasn't that platinum? And by the way, all those wonderful translations—they were not done by the Muslims. Hello, do you know what the first book written in Arabic was? The Quran. Literacy was almost unknown amongst the, uh, the amongst the Arabs of uh, or the Arabians. So the translation work was done by those who were skilled in knowledge. They were the Jews. I mean, the Jews, but primarily the Christians did the vaunted translation work. Alright, on our next slide we take a look. Here is the Islamic world today. This is how it's come. Now then, there's a database I told you about of 548 battles, but it stopped in the year 19 and 22. So, has anything changed? There's a marvelous website called TheReligionOfPeace.com. This is a typical frame from TheReligionOfPeace.com. So I looked at this, and to me this is all data, And you'll notice there are 19,000 jihad attacks since 9-11. The reason I use 9-11 as a reference is I'm an American. And for us, that marks the beginning. This data now, is the data on which I'm going to graph and chart for you is based on 19,000. The number is 22,000 a day. In America, these battles and these deaths are not reported. And if they ever are reported, they're never connected to anything else that happens. You'll notice what I'm talking about here is systemic knowledge. What's important is not one particular event, but the sweep of history. So here we go. These are the, in the ten year period. This is where it was scattered across the world. Now then, I plotted the battles over t- t- a ten year period. The red is the total number of jihad. The green is Muslim on Muslim jihad. And then we have the yellow, which is Muslim on Kafir. An Islamic State in Iraq. What is Islamic State's first piece of business to be? To kill the apostates, the Shia. To kill those who work for the government, who are hypocrites. Now they're not making this up. Because, let's go back and look at classical Arabian history. After Muhammad died, the first Caliph, which is like a Pope, King, Warrior, When Muhammad died, a lot of Muslims said, you know, we've enjoyed being a Muslim, but Muhammad's dead, so we're out of here. We're gone. We're going back to what we were doing before Muhammad. And Abu Bakr said, oh no you're not. No one leaves Islam. So then started the Rida or the Apostasy Wars. 30,000 Arabs died, and after about 30,000 of them died, the rest of them said, you know, the Islam thing looks good to us. So then came Umar. Who gave the biggest expansion? How there were several reasons the expansion happened so fast. Number one, the Black Plague had come through the classical world. The other was Greek and, and uh, the Greeks and Persians had been fighting. And then there was so. What Islamic State is doing in Iraq is exactly what Abu Bakr and Umar are doing because it is the grand strategy of Islamic State to clean out the apostates, to clean out. The hypocrites, so that there is a solid fist which can be used. And what does the caliph, self declared caliph of Islamic State, call himself? Abu Bakr al Baghdadi. It is an imitation of history, a rep- repetition, not an imitation. Now then, I broke the data down. By the way, notice that this jihad in the religion of peace is relentless, it's against Kafirs and the Imperial Muslims. Jihad adapts, but it does not change. It is a constant doctrine. Our next slide. We have the jihad attacks per year and I just chose four countries. I didn't want to choose them all. So here we have Israel, India, Thailand and the Philippines but this is not useful to us because Israel is small, India is very large. So what we need on our next slide is per hundred per capita. Israel is the most. How many people here knew there was intense jihad in Thailand? Did you know that? In the Philippines, it's mostly killing Christian Catholics. And in India, of course, it's killing Hindus. Now I want to read this in a different way Jew, Buddhist, Christian, and Hindu. Jihad is against the Jews, the Buddhists. And by the way, in Europe, there are many secularists who say, well, all right, they're killing Christians. Why do I care anyway? I don't like Christians anyway. Do you know that Islam despises an atheist more than they do a Christian or a Jew? So it's against the secularist as well. Don't think that if there's a jihadist, oh, I don't believe in God. Ooh, that's worse than believing in Jehovah. Next slide. It all follows a doctrine. And by the way, in America, George Bush, the Republican president, said after the 9-11 attack, Islam is the religion of peace. Now I went through all of this 1400 years and I found that there were 12 decades without jihad. So we can say that Islam is a religion of peace, 9%. I've Now been a college professor and if you come to me and take a test and you get 9% on the test, you get an F in the course. I give George Bush an F in my course. Seriously. On our next slide, This constant violence is normal. We have to ask ourselves, why does it never stop? Something is driving it. Does that make sense to you? For 1,400 years, it's never changed except in technology. So therefore, there's something constant that's driving it. What is the pole star? Well, the pole star on our next slide is jihad. But we need to stop and see where do we find jihad. Most people think that Islam is found in the Quran. Is that not a common understanding? But Islam, Allah, is the least of Islam. Muhammad is recorded in two sets of texts, the Sirah, his biography, and the Hadith, which are his traditions. The shortest tradition is, war is deceit. These are all things that Muhammad said and did, and that's the shortest one. Some of them go for as much as a page, but most of them are short paragraphs. They are the reported, what Muhammad said and did. Why do we care what Muhammad said and did? Because there are 93 verses in the Quran which say, do as Muhammad did, speak as Muhammad spoke. Muhammad is the perfect Muslim. Muhammad is the divine human prototype. Allah wants every Muslim to be Muhammad. So therefore, we can say that Islam is 14% Allah and 86% Muhammad. That's an insight right there. By the way, do you notice my constant use of numbers here? You don't believe this? Do it yourself. This is not an opinion. This can be reproduced. All right, so we have, this is the total doctrine. And now then, here's an interesting part. You think that Islamic doctrine is about Muslims. I'll bet most people do. Not so. It's mostly about you and me. So, you may not know it, but you're in the Quran. Nearly two thirds of the Quran is about the infidel. 81% of Muhammad's life is devoted to the infidel, the kafir. And then only 37% is in the hadith. So, over half, I call this the trilogy Quran, Sirah, Hadith. And over half of it is devoted to you and me. Now then. You've probably heard that there's a verse or two in the Qur'an about jihad, just a little bit. Now we need to see something here. This is the beginning of the concept of dualism. How much jihad was there in Mecca? Oops, let's stop. You've heard of the Qur'an, right? There's not a Qur'an. There are two Qur'ans. An early Qur'an and a latter Qur'an. The early was in Mecca, the latter was in Medina. Now, the Quran written in Mecca has no jihad. Hence, it is peaceful. The jihad, the jihad in Medina is 24%. Now, let me ask you this question Is Islam the religion of peace? According to Mecca, yes, it is. But according to Medina, 24% of it is about jihad. Look how much of Muhammad's biography, two thirds of it, is about jihad. And the Sirah, of the hadith is only 21 percent. So nearly a third of the trilogy of Islam is devoted to jihad. And on our next slide this is fascinating to me but I've been a businessman. And I'm interested in sales. I'm interested in is it improving or not? Here's some little-known facts. I love facts. Muhammad preached the religion of Islam for 13 years in Mecca he converted 150. 150. That's about 10 a year. If he had kept on preaching the religion of Islam until he died, there would have been fewer than a thousand Muslims and Islam would have ceased to exist. But when he moved to Medina, he became a politician and a warlord, a jihadist. And look what happened. When he died, every Arab was a Muslim. Remember, He averaged an event of violence on the average of every six weeks for the last nine years of his life. That was successful. The religion didn't work, but the politics of jihad worked incredibly well. But there's also something here. When Islam introduces itself, it's peaceful. Do you know what begins the jihad? Immigration. That's exactly what the history of Muhammad says. Jihad begins with immigration. I am not making this up. I think this is fascinating, but it also creates a question. How come nobody ever sat down and did this? Here's the reason why. Up to now, the study of Islam has been with Orientalists, that is, people who study the Middle East, Arabists, specialists in the Arabic language, and theologians and historians. I'm, to my knowledge, the first scientist who ever studied the Islamic texts. So I was the first scientist there. So all of this work, in a sense, was easy. What follows is harder. On our next slide, we have something else. This is called the law of Islamic saturation. I have plotted the growth of Islam. I plotted the growth of Islam in Arabia. I've now plotted the growth of Islam in many Arab, in many Muslim nations. Here we see Turkey. In the year 1300, when Islam invaded, Turkey was called Asia Minor. It was called Anatolia, and it was Christian. All Christian. Now notice something here. It's now 99.7% Muslim and only 0.3% Christian. Look at the time scale on the bottom. Centuries. Centuries. Islam is never in a hurry because it has a constant doctrine which will be repeated from generation to generation. So there's no need to worry. It will all happen in time. Now the shapes of these curves differ from Lebanon. For instance, Lebanon was a Christian nation before the Second World War. It's now primarily Islamic. Do you know why? Because the Christians, out of their compassion, admitted the Palestinian immigrants. It begins with immigration. I call it the law of Islamic saturation. It will not cease in Turkey until the last Christian is gone. On our next slide, I'm also the first person who ever asked this question. How many have died in jihad? Is this a reasonable question? Yes, it is. You can ask the question, how many died under Stalin? How many died under Mao Zedong? How many died under Pol Pot? How many died under Hitler? These are numbers that are well known. No one has ever asked the question, how many have died in 1,400 years? And the answer is 80 million, uh, 10 million Buddhists. 80 million Hindus, 60 million Christians, and 120 million Africans. The Africans' death was at the result of slavery. It is Islam that drove the slave trade in Africa. Every black African who came from Africa to America as a slave was sold to the white man on the wooden ship by a Muslim slave trader, and they were taken from slave pens. It was a business deal. There were invoices, there were bills of sale, there were inventories. Now let me tell you a little bit about the process of collecting classically collecting slaves. And I have spoken with Africans who were slaves under Islam. They come into the town and they kill those who can defend. Then they capture those who, can, who will be available to be made to work. What happens to the children and the babies? They're left behind. What happens to the weak, the crippled, and the old? They're left behind. What, are the, what happens after all the people who can work and do things? They die of attrition. Then they also die on the forced march. Livingstone interviewed Islamic slave traders and said, why do you do this? They said, it is our religion. But they said, you know, there's something peculiar about this. Many of the slaves die of what they called a disease of the heart. That is, they became so depressed that they simply died. Okay. On our next slide, I maintain that doctrine drives history, and that history shows the true nature of political Islam. Oops, I never explained to you what political Islam is. Let me say this, I have absolutely no interest in the religion of Islam. The religion of Islam is preached in Mecca, and it's concerned with a Muslim avoiding hell and going to paradise. That is the religion. Political Islam is what affects me. 9-11, 9-11, the destruction of the World Trades Towers was a political action with a religious motivation. But the act itself was political. Political Islam is the nature of all Kafir countries and it is permanent and it is unchangeable. Now, some people say, oh, Islam just needs to reform. Let me tell you what the doctrine of Islam is. The Quran is perfect. It is eternal. And it is universal. Now let me ask you a question. How do you take a doctrine that's perfect and eternal and change it? Because if you take something out then it's no longer perfect and if it's perfect you can't add anything to it. Does this make sense? So there is no such thing as moderating Islam. Now a Muslim may be moderate in the sense that he doesn't practice all of Islam. By the way do you notice something here? Am I talking about Muslims? I'm talking about doctrine and history. I never talk about Muslims. On our next slide, we have an, are looking at our own intellectual history. Why is this news to you? Why isn't this common knowledge? There's something very peculiar as you read all the historical doctrine. When Islam came out of Arabia, it was the Saracens and the Arabs. When Islam invaded from Turkey, what was it? was it? Were they Muslims? No, they were Turks. When they invaded Spain, were they Muslims? No. They were Moors. And in England today, for instance, the Muslims are called Asian. There's something to be known here in psychology. We do not want to name those who are persecuting. Here's something else. In America, those who know about Islam are apologists for Islam. And when you see the courses they took in college, you'll understand why. They don't study the primary doctrine. They study comments by Muslims about the doctrine. It's very different when you study the root cause. And I, by the way, have very little use for secondary sources. What I want to use are primary sources, not secondary. And all the establishment uh, specialists are apologists for Islam. The head of the uh, Islamic Studies Department at Vanderbilt University is an apologist for Islam. It's only those outside the establishment who are critics of Islam. And I'm not really a critic of Islam. Think back what I've been telling you. Have I ever said it was wrong? That they shouldn't have done that? I've simply described what happened and why. On our next slide, I have a question for you. I sell a Quran which any person can pick up and read. Why did it take 1,400 years for this to happen? I'll tell you why. I know some of these scholars in universities. They want to be very smart. They are elites in their own way. They don't want to make it easy. Besides, they weren't taught it was easy anyway. They expect the Quran to be confusing and almost ununderstandable. So there's never even the thought, why do we make this readable? But why is it that it's waited this long? Why is it that in the schools in America, I don't know here, the Quran is not taught, Jihad is not taught, Muhammad isn't taught, the Hadith are not taught. And then in America, the sum of Islam is called the Golden Age, the high point of human history. Why do we remain ignorant and keep suffering? Now then, little story. After doing all this study, my wife, who is a who works with me as well, she's my internet researcher. And also, if you study this stuff, you need somebody to talk to. All right. So she gets to hear me talk a lot. Maybe most wives are, I don't know. But But I was talking to her and I said, why is it we will not study this? Because I get a lot of pushback. Oh, you're a bigot, you're a hater, you're an Islamophobe. Why is that? I said, you know, it's like we're abused wives, or sexually abused children. And she said, wait a minute. So my internet researcher went in the house and came back with a document from the YWCA, which is a women's organization. It was the Rape and Sexual Abuse uh, and Wife Beat... That's not the right word, but basically the manual on how to counsel women who've been sexually abused and beaten. So the next thing you're going to see is using this model to explain why we are who we are. On our next slide, now by the way, in America it is not politically correct, do y'all have political correctness here? Okay. It's not politically correct to criticize any minority, you'll be called a bigot. And then there's this element of, you can actually be physically threatened. But that's this century. When we read history books, it existed before political correctness and multiculturalism. So we have to seek an answer. Now, remember, I have described ongoing brutality. Now, next slide, we see what I call the traumatized mind. Kafirs accept violence and threats from Islam without protest. We deny the suffering caused by political Islam, and we accept political Sharia. Oh, you need Sharia? Fine. I'll describe political Sharia in the next lecture. The Rape and Sexual Abuse Manual says that violent molestation can create denial. I maintain that the Western mind is in the state of denial. Next slide. They deny there's even attack. If anyone has ever talked with women who are abused by their husbands, oh, no, no, no. Oh, occasionally, maybe a little, he did once. It's denial. Our media in the United States speaks very little of the jihad and never connects the dot. And this is tragic. The Christians never speak of the Christians being killed in Iraq. Never speak of the Christians being killed in Nigeria, Sudan, and other areas. It is something you do not talk about. Denial. Fear. The fear is the tool that the u- abuser used to control the victim. Now this refers to, in America, there was something that was... The, the, you know of the Mohammed cartoons? Okay? Why is there such an outrage? It creates fear. In America, people are physically afraid to say anything and do anything which they view would insult Islam. Why are facts insults? Facts are facts. On our next slide, we have guilt. We've not treated Islam in the right way. If we will only treat Islam better, all of this will go away. This violence is a result of our foreign policy in America. We have the wrong foreign policy. If we had the right foreign policy, everything would be good. If we treat the Muslims right, they'll treat us right. There's shame. They don't want this talked about. That's the reason in America this history is not taught at all. On our next slide, there's humiliation. How many Europeans like to brag about the fact their ancestors were slaves, sold into slavery in the Islamic world? This is not a subject we want to talk about anger turns inward. I can tell you this in America. After 9-11, American politics changed. It became far less reasonable. It became far more hateful. George Bush is an idiot. That is not political comment. That is not political comment. And he's not an idiot. You may not like his policies, but that is to start examining his policies is the beginning of critical thought. George Bush is an idiot. That's not critical thought. We assassinate character. With my lectures I'm never challenged on their facts. I'm just told to be does the term KKK mean anything to you all here? I'm KKK, I'm a neo-Nazi, I'm a hater, I'm a bigot. No one ever says that fact is not a fact. They say I am an immoral person. On our next slide, we're very pessimistic. In America there's a great depression about Islam. It goes like this, well what are we going to do? On our next slide, here's the abuser. The abuser, no wife beater ever says, man I beat my bitch last night. No, they don't do that. They don't strike her, or if they did, she needed it. So there's not any sense talking about it. For instance, Turkey denies the Armenian genocide. There was no genocide. Oh, there were a few people killed, but that was because of some wars, so they deny it. And by the way, they're arrogant and overly confident. Islam is perfect. There's nothing wrong with Islam, and so therefore, it cannot be criticized. On our next slide, domination. The word Islam means to submit. The abuser expects submission. When I deal with Muslims, and I do so in a quiet tone of voice, I never insult, I never anger, and I use facts. They're stunned. What? You do not submit? You do not apologize? You do not try to be nice? Really, I'm telling you, they're like, I can't believe that he will stand and talk. Because they expect submission. And then they want us to feel guilty. In in America, after 9-11, the Muslims said again and again, we are the true victims of the attack on 9-11. People say bad things about Islam. Somebody pointed their finger at my wife with her hijab in the checkout line. We are the victims. Here's what I maintain. After 1400 years of jihad, brutality, enslavement, theft, deception, rape, annihilation and insults, the Kafir mind has become that identical to that of the abused wife. But what's the solution? We must face our history, we must face our fears. And with that, I draw you to a close. Thank you.